0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. I'm your host, Julia Kablinska, recording today on a very icy day in Ohio. Um, Very glad, however, that I was able to make it and uh, meet with Peggy Wong, who is our guest for today, uh, Associate Professor of Art History and Asian Studies at uh, Bowdoin College. Uh, She is the author of The Future History of Contemporary Chinese Art, the book which we will be discussing. Uh, At Bowdoin, she teaches the span of Asian art history from the pre-modern to the contemporary era. Her research explores how meanings and histories are constructed in light of cultural globalization. The book that we will be discussing today focuses on methods of interpretation and narratives of agency, Um, speaking to Professor Wong's inquiries inquiries into what it means for histories of contemporary art and art history more general to be inclusive. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Peggy. Thank you so much, Julia. I'm so happy to be here. Uh, so let's start then with the very typical introduction, which helps our listeners locate you in a sort of genealogy of um, Asian studies, art history, etc. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how you came to the field and um, who's, who who were your mentors, whose work are you really most in conversation with? Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about that. And also I'll frame this
2: also in terms of my the direction of my book, because my book is also very much directed at how the field, a well, scholarly field, we could say of contemporary Chinese art has, uh, has formed. And I would say from my undergraduate to graduate years and then now as a professor. So the first time I really encountered art history as a discipline, and then contemporary Chinese art specifically was as an undergraduate. And my advisor there, my mentor there was Liu Heping, who was a, who is a Song Dynasty painting specialist, uh, but he did offer a class my junior year, and that was the year 2000 on 20th century Chinese art. So it went all the way from the Republican period up through the 1990s. And so if you imagine the year 2000 that I'm taking this, we're looking at art that had really just been produced earlier that decade. But of course, we have to think in terms of the lag time of how this art is being historicized. Is there a critical distance? And how that material, too, the lag time of translation from Chinese into English, right? Because we're talking about for an American audience at an American institution. So I really applaud my professor for uh, teaching us all the way through the 90s because we can see that um, the first large-scale survey exhibition of contemporary Chinese art happened in 1998, uh, sorry, in the United States, happened in 1998. It was called Inside Out. It was curated by Ming Lu, and it took place in New York. And that catalog was actually one of our textbooks, right? So this idea of needing to turn to exhibition catalogs, anything that's really been written for this public, uh, we took uh, as part of our teaching resources, and we are also looking at some kind of dispatches on the ground through the website ChineseArt.com. Judy Andrews, of course, at OSU had also published, um, but we're really talking about some occasional journal articles, some web postings, and then uh, Go Minglu's exhibition catalog as kind of the first stab at what feels like a narrative that you could teach from. Um, I started... Anyways, that started really my interest in contemporary Chinese art. I went to graduate school at University of Chicago, and I started in the year 2002, and I studied with Wu Hong. And Wu Hong himself had really, he's trained as a Han dynasty art historian, but he's, people who know his work, he's published all over the map. And his interest in contemporary Chinese art, which he has also now become very well known for, really started in the mid-90s, He was curating shows at the Smart Museum at the University of Chicago in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so when I started working with him, uh, we were both kind of witnessing the upswing and the momentum towards contemporary Chinese art as it was growing through the 2000s. And chronologically speaking, we can talk about how kind of the market for contemporary Chinese artwork really took off in the mid 2000s. And so you're kind of witnessing the explosion of contemporary art from mainland China, like getting interest worldwide uh, in the 2000s. So as another point of fact, I would say that when I was at University of Chicago, I didn't take any classes that were dedicated to contemporary Chinese art. There just wasn't that kind of material that was available. So I was taking classes on ancient Chinese art, (laughs) all of of Chinese painting of the, you know, through the decades, through the dynasties, and then I would take classes on contemporary criticism and theory, right? So it was really my summers when I, or when I was doing dissertation research, when I would go to China and I would go interview artists and go to studios and really try to start to build my own archive of materials too, where you're just collecting whatever you could on the ground. That was really my training <laughs> um, through the 2000s. Yeah, so that also gives you a sense of the how young the field is and how much it's really uh, grown really in the past, since 2010, I would say.
1: Uh, wonderful. And a shout out to Julie Andrews, uh, who is the uh, art history professor here at OSU. Um, and I, I have to say that I... I Took my first contemporary Chinese art graduate course at Columbia University in 2011, and I and we were still relying on very similar materials to those that you're describing. So your book is certainly um, very much needed in the field. So uh, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled we have it both um, as a text that we can uh, discuss as scholars, but also as a text that helps our uh, students understand this field uh, more. Rigorously, let's say, and and I have to say that also your experience of doing fieldwork and interacting with the artists it comes through very visibly in the book. Um, Your descriptions of how the art came to be um, are so precise, and in fact, uh, much more so than some of the other descriptions of this art that I have encountered. Um, We can get to this later, but for example, I was surprised to find out that um, Wang Guangyi's uh, paintings are done in fact in industrial paint um, and not oil, which is something that I read in. uh, another um, another uh, article that was written, in fact, um, in a scholarly fashion. Um, so we have much to redress. Um, let's begin then with uh, some of the questions that animate your book that we come into um, the introduction as well as in the discourses about Chinese art that are happening among Chinese artists and critics in the 1980s and 90s in your second chapter. So perhaps let's ask this question, which um, is certainly central, which is what is the world and how, how does this imperative to go to the world uh, that is voiced by the Chinese state in the 1980s following, of course, the collapse of a certain type of socialist world um, during the end of the Cultural Revolution. Um, so what does this mean for Chinese art and artists and their self-understanding?
2: Yeah, so the idea of the world um, really was something that we have to pay attention to how artists themselves grew up thinking about it, right? And then when they encounter experiences abroad, what that means, uh, and then also all the discourses and debates on the ground around, for example, international identity. So these are all uh, ways in which, uh, these are all factors that contribute to how I am thinking about what we need to pay attention to when we write about these artists. And so, just as a point of fact, for example, when I was writing my book and I was selecting the artists and thinking about it, I would talk to people, people would say, Oh, are you including, for example, Huang Yongping, who is a very famous artist who left China in 89 and lived in France and did wonderful conceptual artwork? And I said, Well, you know, I really like his work, but he's not necessarily in my Book. And I said, well, you know, if you want to talk about the global <laughs> of contemporary Chinese art, you should include so called diaspora artists, artists who left China. And that for me really clarified the ways in which people think about global when it's tracked to migration and circulation. Of course, that is an important way to think about global, and geographical reach is an important way to think about global, but that can often come at the expense of other ways of thinking about ones, for example, belonging in the world and how you can assert that kind of belonging. So I want to add that layer of global relevance, particularly as artists, because artists thought of themselves as globally relevant, as contributing to Ways in which we can conceive of art. That when they were talking about let's create contemporary Chinese art, they were seeing that as broadcasting it to the world. Right. So wanting to add that layer in is to disrupt that way of thinking about local global that often comes to confine ways in which Chinese artists have been really kind of uh, categorized. Right. So if artists this this maps onto ways in which we'll say oh, this artist's work must only be in reaction to their local immediate circumstance. And then when it goes to like Venice or Germany, then it's made global, right? And so that always just consigns their work to only seeming like it could dialogue with only stuff that's happening inside of China. Um, and then I also map this idea as something that um, artists themselves, right, are so conscious of, so how do we bring that up? Uh, and sometimes, well, I would say that these artists who were born in the, the ones I look at were born in the 50s and 60s, and sometimes we think about like, 走向世界, as the like, walking towards the world of the 80s must mean that 60s, 70s, China was totally isolated, and that is one way, retrospectively talk about it, but really China did see themselves at the forefront of a socialist world, right? Connected to you know, um, Africa and Latin America and wanting to build a new world. And when you hear artists' voices from that time period, they really are talking about let's build a new art for the new world, right? And so that kind of ambition, I feel, or that sense of uh, mission about building an art for a new world, for a world that still is something that is in these artists' minds when they're making their art in the 80s and 90s. It is for the world, right? Now, when we talk about Zhou in the 80s, it's like walking towards the capitalist world, and so it's kind of moving outwards. But this also means that it was up for a lot of debate. There wasn't like one standard idea of what that world was. It could be a world that, the, what they really did recognize, though, was that it was very Western-centered. Right, this idea that, um, kind of the West, this idea that if the West achieves modernity, then somehow um, Chinese modernity has to be something that's necessarily lagging. That was uh, something that they wanted to push back against, as if there's like one universal ideal, right? And so this idea of maybe recentering China, right, or you know, decentering the West by having m- multiple centers throughout the world. Different critics and different artists came up with their interpretations of that. But I do want to say that it is not a fixed thing. This idea when talking about global and the world, it's not fixed. And artists understood that, and they felt like it was something that they could contribute to was this reshaping of kind of that topography.
1: For those of you listening at home, I must admit that we're having some technical difficulties. If you notice a change in the quality of our recording, Peggy is being very accommodating um, and we have switched platforms so that we can get this podcast to you. Um, So let me uh, begin then with a question about the way in which 19, the 1980s functioned as a time during which artists um, were invited, of course, to participate in this national drive to um, open up towards the West, right? The capitalist West, as we might say. Um, and that was their first encounter, really, with a mass amount of new information, um, new for them, delayed um, in other ways, but certainly these uh, reproductions of Western art that. Uh, introduced to them an art history that they had that had, had no access to um, during the socialist period, or at least that they had had a very constrained access to. So if you could talk a little bit about that initial euphoria, and then um, what you called the retrospective lament um, that starts to uh, happen towards the end of the 1980s, um, which are then, of course, punctured by political ruptured, per political rupture with uh, um, events at Tiananmen Square. And then the artist is artists' experiences in the world, so to speak, when they travel to Europe and they encounter what they had only seen in books. So I turn the floor to you.
2: Thank you so much, Julia. It's a great point about the different attitudes that actually happen in relation to what they consider Western influence from the 80s to the 90s, because there is a substantive shift and one that we really have to pay attention to. And so in the 1980s is the time when um, artists are going to the art academies. The art academies have reopened in the late 70s and it's the period known as Ga Kaifang, which is the opening reform movement. And suddenly there's huge amounts of translated philosophy texts and art catalogs and um, art histories that they had access to, including, you know, Chinese philosophy that they hadn't uh, had access to either during the Cultural Revolution. And so, uh, and it is just this period of learning and excitement towards it. And so artists were happy to kind of discuss with their peers and they formed small art groups and they then viewed um, these discussions as platforms where they could find each other and really kind of generate a sense of community. Another feature that we have to pay attention to is that artists at this time were happy to what we would call copy, you know, work in the style of for example, Van Gogh, who they admired very much. And they saw no problem at all with copying, right? They didn't consider themselves derivative in any way. It was just this idea that there's this mass of ideas in a reservoir and you can take freely from it. And there was no sense of shame about copying, about seeing derivative or anything. People were just happy to um, feel like they could try out and experiment in these different ways. But that sense of we could say you know whether it's shame or just kind of lament starts to creep up in the late 80s and that happens when artists start to and critics too start to think you know have we actually privileged these external sources too much and at the expense of what right so one way in which they're thinking was have we actually looked at philosophy too much, not just Western philosophy, but these high-minded ideals that when we translate them into art, everyday people can't access them, right? So it really made them feel like they hadn't made themselves visible. They hadn't made their own visual culture visible. They had really looked uh, to these external sources so much uh, and that maybe it was time to start to figure out what their own art history could be, right? As one that didn't kind of look towards the West. And then this was compounded uh, when they started to go abroad, as you said. So starting in the 1990s, artists have more opportunities to go abroad. In some cases, uh, exhibit abroad, for example, at Venice Biennale. uh, And a lot of those kinds of experiences that they have are so bitter because they realize that, you know, oh, you actually have to, you know, jockey for position of how of where to exhibit in an exhibition hall. And there's this really kind of this cold water that is splashed onto them when they realize the way they, they feel like they are treated, the way they are viewed. And they realize it's not a sense of, you know, this great global unity, but really cultural difference as that is what is defining them. And one of the artists who has this experience most explicitly is Zhang Xiaogang. And so in my second chapter, I really take time to weave together his very, like a visceral story of the ways in which he encountered these uh, Western art works that he had really looked to so closely in the 80s and viewed himself as being kind of the brethren of and inheritors of this tradition. And then when he actually went uh, to go see their works in museums, it was a shock and it was a shock at multiple levels. One is that when he saw the works in person, he realized the extent to which, oh, those readings that he had relied on in the 80s, there were such poor reproductions and so poor that he, uh, it was like looking at two different images. Right. And then the secondly, he realized that because the reproductions were so poor, he relied so much on the text to frame and to explain the works. And those texts really relied a lot about mythology, about the genius of this artist. But when he looked so closely at the works, he realized, oh, uh, it wasn't like he, you know, this artist had been untrained or just had grasped by genius necessarily, but it was based on color theory. It was based on a very careful application of paint. And so for every kind of dimensional physical thing that he saw of the work, he realized the ways in which he had been, uh, you know, taken astray perhaps by uh, a sort of a fictional art history that was comprised of works that, uh, and narratives that ultimately were not what he thought he would so was so close to and I would say actually a second point about that was that when he was in Europe he then was able to experience what was happening you know he could experience the built environment the environment there and then he also realized the extent to which the artists that he admired so much were absorbing their own environment. So when he went to Amsterdam or when he was in France, he's like, oh, I see now why Van Gogh painted the way he did. He was drawing from his own environment. And then he thought to himself, what have I been painting? It's not my own environment. It's really drawn from this other thing that now turns out to be fictional. And so in all these ways, he realized maybe I, I have not drawn on my own experience. I had not drawn on what is directly influencing me. I have not looked at my own environment in that way. And so that also motivates him and gives him the sense of mission that when he returns back to China, realizes I have to look more closely at my own life, my own experiences, and my own environment. And so that Painful lineage that he thought that he had been a part of was cut so deeply, and then he realized he has to construct one, and it's one that has to come from his own direct, you know, life.
1: Wonderful. Well, that sets me up wonderfully for the next question, which is, of course, about Zhang's most famous series, probably to Western um, observers of Chinese art, which is Bloodlines, right? Which is a series that. Uh, as, as you mentioned in your book, it comes from a personal encounter with old family photographs. But for, for interestingly for me, it also participates in a much bigger pop cultural phenomenon of sort of turning back to old photos and the circulation of old photos and photo books in the 1990s. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about how you interpret this series and how you push against a perhaps simplistic reading of imitation again, right? The sense that he is just copying photos uh to show us actually what it is that he's doing in in painting photographs um and photographs of this new lineage right that that represent the new lineage
2: yeah so the famous story is that in 1993 he went back to his family home and he found this cache of old family portraits and so that is in fact true, but usually then people just jump to his bloodline series and say, then he's clearly just copying photographs but to say that means that you're ignoring all the choices that he's making as a painter and so the choices of you know texture color treatment of light and in fact that is all a sort of translation that is happening uh, while he's looking at the photograph that is important resource but there's a lot that is happening behind it and that maps onto this search for lineage that he returned to China with right? This idea that, okay, I don't see Western expressionists or surrealists as being my brethren anymore. I don't locate myself in that art history. I have to find a new one. And that also helps us to see the attraction of the family portrait, right? We see family portrait, oftentimes it is this idea of family, like this literal family. And indeed, that is what we see as the subject of the painting. But there's another kind of content, if you want to view it as that. And the content is uh, an art historical lineage behind that, right? And was so when he saw these family portraits, he saw, oh, there are ways in which these studios are positioning these figures or using light in this way, that there are these choices and in the retouching of them, there are these choices about, you know, how to relay physical dimensionality or how to reduce that um, through the application of paint. And so he sees these choices as a sort of set of values and as ultimately as like aesthetic choices that themselves should form its own art history. And so when I see the family portraits and his bloodline series—it's not just family portrait in the sense of that is who, um, that is you know the subject of you know like two parents and a child. It's also family in the sense of belonging. Right? How do you map your relationships with other people? Um, and we know very well that his earliest experiences with art history was seeing art history as a place in which you belonged, in which you defined yourself in accordance with you know, values, in accordance with styles, uh, uh, ways of viewing, and then translation of that uh, into visual medium, that that is a sort of family, right? And so when I see that he saw these pictures, you know, that he found in his family home. What he saw was not just, oh, this is something I can copy, but rather, wow, there's actually an extensive lineage of visual choices here. And maybe this is where I can locate a new art history and find my place of belonging and identification in accordance with that.
1: One of the most fascinating aspects of this chapter for me was not only this rediscovery of uh, portraiture photography, um, which of course, as we know, is quite, um, quite popular in China as it is around the world, but in the socialist period, there is a, there's a, this mass of visual production of such photographs. Um, but also you make a, a longer connection um, and a connection that I think quite interestingly opens up even more theoretical considerations about the relationship between painting and photography, which is the way in which his work evokes a uh, the republican era calendar poster art iconic sort of republican period uh imagery imagery so so common in fact that it has become kitsch um but if you could talk a little bit about that that history and the relationship between um, the style here and the idea of retouching and photography and painting, and the way in which those two processes blur, um, I, I would be I would love to hear that before we move on to um, the next artist. Um, and one thing I will also throw in here is that one one of the things that I first noticed about his works and looking at your book is the painted frame. Um, that appears in some of his pictures. And it's a type of ornamentation that I think for me also evokes a little bit of that pre-socialist, I don't know, a a type of glamor associated with with portraiture um, that certainly would not have been allowed in the socialist period. So I'm also interested in that frame um, and and that non-socialist history of this, this type of painting of photography or in the style of the lineage of photography.
2: Yeah, so this idea of, you know, the that interplay between painting and photography, certainly he himself then locates a much longer lineage, as you noted, right? So not just the family portraits that he discovered, but what we call Yefam Pai, which are the uh, calendar posters of the Republican period in which uh, you use a very similar sort of retouching of these women to make them appear very soft, right? So the treatment of the the texture of the skin, the ways in which the overall aesthetic, he sees that as a really valuable historical genealogy for his own paintings. And it's important, I think, too, that he talks about it in terms of ming tian, right? which is, of course, like many of the terms that are raised, um, a very versatile sort of uh, term, but sometimes people talk about it as folk. Sometimes people talk it as kind of more public. I think for him it's really a way of evoking a type of art that exists outside of the academy, outside of official channels, right? For him then he was looking for an art history for himself that didn't go back to his socialist realist training And he also wanted one that didn't go back to western expressionism and surrealism and so what he did find then he really think it's very important that he found this mingjian tradition that then you know survives and sustains through uh family portraiture too right so he's tracking a very long lineage then and he wants to kind of connect back with that. But then he also wants to make his own changes to it. As he said, you know, I'm not just a real pie painter. Right? There are things that he is doing himself. Um, and so uh, there are other choices that he makes that shifts then how he is painting his figures. For example, in family portraits that you, if you see photographs of family portraits from, you know, the Cultural Revolution era or, you know, from the 50s and 60s, generally it's three quarters lighting right? So it makes the face look very full. But his paintings have lighting that is right down the center. So these are just choices that he's making to say, I'm not just copying this existing photograph. I'm making choices to, um, in my paintings, to draw on something, but also shift it as well. And these are all careful considerations then that goes into, you know, how he's thinking about uh, light as it falls across the face to imply kind of the movement of time, for example, or the ways in which he's thinking. You know, light brings about shadow, shadow brings about light. So there's further ways in which he is making these considerations as he does layer upon layer upon layer, um, very subtly in his bloodline paintings. The painted frame you noted is really interesting because those that frame really only appears in his 1993 paintings. the time so there are some early paintings that he does that look similar to you know his what we later see as bloodline family portrait but um it's always really important to track why those changes occur so we can't just uh and so that's one of the things that actually really drew me to thinking there must be more to this than just saying he's copying because he experienced he experiments so much with adding ornamentation, adding little symbols, and then he takes them away. So he's clearly thinking about the surface or what he wants you know, that texture to be, or what symbolism is, and maybe not wanting something to have external references, right? And having something actually just be kind of internal to itself. Um, and so all of those things I think should make us closer observers, right? Um, and as a further point too, when he first came back from Europe, he took a lot of photographs. He took a lot of photographs of um, his friends. He took photographs of places that he was visiting. And that was a way of thinking, oh, how do I get closer to my built environment? How do I study things? And then he was trying to see the photograph as you know something to copy so it was part of his initial sort of um, pedagogical mode we could say right a of learning from these things but I would say there's a distinct shift from that treatment of the photograph as something to be copied to then what we actually end up with where he says I'm not copying <laughs> I'm actually making a lot of choices um, I don't want to make external references and that also ties to Um, a way of rereading one of the most popular readings of the paintings, which is this recycled interpretation where people say, these figures look so similar. He must be commenting on the suppression of individuality under communist ideology, right? So it's about standardization of people. But if we actually step back from that and think he was really interested in defining people as part of groups, as belonging and part of histories. He was interested in thinking about photographs, not as something to be copied, right? So he doesn't wanna actually take an external reference, but he wants to find an internal logic. I actually kind of flip that on its head then and say, oh, this paint; these paintings are about how people are related to each other and the relationships. And they're not about um, that way of reaching outside of the frame to make to, as if he was copying something else. And I would say that if he was trying to create like standardization, then he could have made every figure identical, right? But he didn't. Everybody's just like a little bit different from the person next to them. And so he's created this kind of internal logic where your belonging is really the thing that identifies you. And it's not about you as an individual, but it's as you as part of a group.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe, dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new
1: vibe every day at sax.com. Great. Uh, So... We'll finish up with our discussion of um, Zhang Zhang here, and we'll move on to um, what you've identified as the pro- probably the two most famous, the second of the most famous artists, um, who is Wang Guangyi, who um, brings a whole other set of problems and sort of uh, staid interpretations. Right? Um, why don't we begin by talking about the problem of Wang and the idea of pop and pop art, and the sort of again reductive readings of. Oh, well, here they are. They've learned about pop art. So now they're making pop art, those artists in China. Um, and it, it, let me just tell you that I'm informing this question with this um, recent rethinking, especially of socialist materialities and socialist objects. One of the most exciting treatments I've read um, and actually had the pleasure of interviewing the author is Laurence Coderre's Newborn Socialist Things, in which she really shows how the emergence of commodities, for example, in the Cultural Revolution um, might well be related to the same kind of processes that are happening in the West, but not derivative of them necessarily. Right? So we have these histories um, of things that are popularly consumed, which include commodities, but also include what we would consider propaganda objects. Um, And likewise, there is a wonderful treatment of the Western interpretation of Chairman Mao vis-a-vis Chairman Mao's own proliferation as a quotation song in China during the Cultural Revolution and Andrew Jones's most recent book, Circuit Listening, right? So your work is also contributing to this sense, well, um, let's think more seriously about socialist uh, art and then how it's taken up by contemporary artists, um, not just as a copying of, let's say, Andy Warhol, whom we have to admit is himself copying an image of Chairman Mao that circulates at that time. Um, So, well, maybe pop art was actually invented in China after all. (laughs) That's a joke. But um, back to my original question. Yeah. Could you tell us what the problem with pop is in this time period that you're writing about?
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, thank you for that question, because it, it draws on a lot of really important things that are happening within scholarship right now, including, like you said, the rereading of cultural evolution uh, materials and showing them to be actually very rich and not this time in which uh, everything is derivatively called propaganda and that we can actually reconsider that term. Because I would say in art history, for example, oftentimes propaganda is just kind of it's not even addressed right it's not addressed at all because it's not viewed as a, it's like a valid high art form or posters aren't treated as uh, something to be studied right but when you have 900 million copies of Chairman Mao Goes to Onion we're talking about you know a different way of thinking about the purposes of art it's not uh, about rarity and it's about not about quote-unquote originality, if you can even call it that, but it's really about like, reaching the people. So we're talking about totally different frames of uh, consideration, but considerations that have then, because it's a privileging of a Western one within uh, into, within art history, you know, that serious treatment of what we call propaganda has not really happened um, or is only just beginning to happen, I think, in textbooks, in survey books. So, uh, and what I what I talk about then is that Wang Guangyi himself was already kind of resurrecting and rethinking this period. And that's why we actually end up with it in his uh, Great Criticism series is that he experienced something similar to what Zhang Xiaogang did, which is this kind of retrospective lament Saying, why haven't I looked at my own visual culture? You know, I grew up with these sources, uh, Chairman Mao, propaganda, Baotou, all these like different sources of um, imagery, and I have not actually treated them as something to be studied. And so he thinks. Maybe this is something that deserves to be studied, and then to be printed, uh, presented in his own painting. Now, the view of <laughs> that view is not something that I think has really uh, entered into the the popular readings of Wang Guangyi's work because for a number of reasons. One, because of the dismissal of propaganda and there's a sense of how could that in all be like a rich tradition, right? That he would be reviving. Um, there's a second view, which is like when, whenever we use the term pop here, this idea is like, uh, well, pop was invented <laughs> in you know the 60s in the West. And so if you see, have anything that even resembles that elsewhere, it must be a case of, uh, you know, the West and the rest of, uh, you have the original and everything else is a variation on the original. Because we don't see this until the nineties in China or the late eighties and the nineties in China, it becomes very popular to say it's a form of deja vu. All artists are just coming to this. And so it's a way of saying how, contemporary artists in China are just belated, right? Um, they're only just learning a pop, so that's why we see it now. And so it's a way of reinforcing a, very, uh, a view that really privileges this Western-centered um, uh, interpretation of the, the prioritizing of an original where everything else is a derivative. And in my chapter, I actually go into how our uh, critics and art historians and artists themselves were engaged in this very question. like, if, if we use elements that seem pop-like, if we use graphic elements and graphic aesthetics, if we reference pop in any way, will that mean that we are always following Western footsteps? How is it that we can Uh, have something that is our own, right? Um, And I would say uh, the point that I make too is that because Wang Guangyi's works appeared so legible and so familiar to Western audiences because they look like, you know, Andy Warhol's work, because they look like pop, that's why they became so popular, Internationally, right? That's why Wang Guangyi becomes so popular, and so that's also why he is then kind of condemned as the poster boy of of uh, political pop. People say like, oh, because he takes up so much space, and then he represents, you know, this view of, of, of catering to Western audiences because his work is so popular. You know, really, um, he's he, he he becomes a straw man to in which people say, if we want a more comprehensive view, then we have to look at artists that aren't Wang Guangyi, right? If we want to talk about Wang Guangyi as being kind of a more, you know, more multifaceted artist, more interesting artist than that, we have to see his his installations, not just his political pop paintings. And so in that way, the reductiveness of the his interpretation as he's copying pop slash he is using workers, peasants, soldiers as showing kind of the anachronistic um, value of socialism in the 90s. He's critiquing China, like all these ways of viewing it have become just like baked into how we think of him that I feel like it's been at the expense of actually saying it's actually a question of interpretation. It's a question of, we have to go back and excavate a deeper meaning here because if we just say, oh, we need a more comprehensive view of China, so let's bring in our Chinese art, let's bring in other artists, that doesn't get to the fundamental question of why we, you know, how we might inadvertently be using these implicit biases or explicit biases that center Western interpretations once
1: again. Thank you for your answer. Um, Before we move on, to an artist um, who is perhaps a little more disenchanted with even the idea of art that speaks to the people, Uh, I wanted to focus on two elements of um, Wang's practice, one of which is taking images from Baotou, which you talk about, which are these uh, collections of technically mastheads, but sort of like you call it clip art. So this is actually a resource that I've come across. I've collected many of them myself, and I'm really interested in. Um, and it speaks, of course, to the way in which art was practiced by the people during the period of the Cultural Revolution. Um, and in fact, it, as far as I know, um, they, they continue to be printed into the 1980s. So this is one kind of material source from from which he's pulling um, the second one that i'd like you to comment on is his use of paint as industrial paint um, which uh, you have a, a short introduction to sort of how he comes to this uh, medium which is by spilling paint onto reproductions of western art um, as a sort of uh rejection, right, of that, of that lineage, which we see again and again in all the artists that you talk about. Um, but then he he uses that very same material to make this uh, I don't am not quite sure what to call it. Pop art doesn't seem adequate, but in any case, the sort of art that he makes. So if you could talk about that one source and then this one kind of material that he that he pours onto his paintings.
2: Yeah, and thank you so much for bringing up the baotou part, because that's part of this kind of ways in which we can talk about the richness uh, of the kinds of sources um, that people had available to them. And then also, as you said, part of the process of how people were uh, making art too. Because a lot of times it is the discussions of Wang Yu's work was he copied posters, but he didn't copy posters. The fact that he looked at Baotou in particular, puts him within a very specific tradition in this one that you, as you said, really involves the people because these little circulated the clip art being the, the closest that we have nowadays is that, you know, these would go into various villages all across China. And because you had billboards and blackboards and, you know, newspaper boards that had to be covered with illustrations and news, Um, people just like half-trained amateur artists could take these photo um, pamphlets, choose one that they liked, enlarge it and copy it and choose where to put it on their we could call it canvas, but really on their billboard, right? On their composition. And when you flip to the back of the bottle, a lot of times there are, you know, discussions about, that is explicitly educating people about, you know, you want to have both horizontal and vertical text because that's more interesting. Uh, this is how you enlarge uh, an image, uh, you use a grid form. This is when you want to illustrate you know, um, landowners, you have to show them as being weak. If you want to illustrate workers, you have to show them as being very strong. And so you exaggerate their musculature. So not just anatomy, but then the specific kind of ideological uh, ideas that inform that. And so there's An entire, so when you see this, you realize, oh, there's an entire tradition, a visual tradition that is about, you know, educating people about values, about processes, and again, when uh, Wang Guangyi is seeing himself as, you know, making this entire tradition visible and inserting himself into that when he uses Baoto he is you know following a very similar process where he's which one of these am I going to select I'm going to enlarge it uh and I'm going to participate in it and it is way in which he asserts himself as you know an artist a contemporary artist but also aligning himself with the people because this is very much a tradition that is of the people, people making their choices, right? And so that is a way in which I think that richness of the uh, location of his own lineage is so important with uh, finding that within Balto. And then for him too, uh, using industrial paint was very important. Uh, For him, he also wanted to get away from... uh, Similarly, like Western sources, right, but also his own socialist realist tradition. And so this makes a distinction between Baoto as of the people and socialist realism, kind of the Soviet socialist realism that he was trained in, right? A lot of times they got kind of compressed together, but actually... He was saying, like, the way, the very specific ways in which those bodies of, uh, from Baoto are formed, that's different from the way in which he was trained in school. So he's thinking very much about, you know, stepping away from quote-unquote fine art, right, and those choices that are made through oil. He does use oil sometimes in his painting if he wants to reach a certain opacity, but this idea of taking directly from, like, industrial paint was really important to him because he was recognizing the importance of that um, as speaking to, like, being of the people and not doing that kind of fine, um, you know, uh, mixing of paints that he, all of this that he experimented with, he was very familiar with uh, these sorts of processes of, of like how to use paint um, from his own practices, but in the 80s, but he also, you know, worked through like, if I mix this with turpentine, what is the effect? So we always have to think choices, choices, choices that are being made here in um, the paint handling and the choices of what he was using. You're right when you reference the, um, pouring of paint onto existing reproductions. That's from an earlier series that he did right before, Great Criticism, in which he was thinking about uh, really the value of paint to uh, obscure sometimes, right? But then
1: how it could be used
2: uh, to speak for something as well. Uh,
1: So now we kind of turn uh, very uh, adroitly, I suppose, in your book from just Painter uh, artists were known mostly as painters, although as as you mentioned, Wang Guangyi also does installations. Um, to somebody who is one of China's first video artists, and yet who is also still a painter, um, Zhang Peili. So, could you talk to us a little bit about his uh, two? complementary pieces, right? The standard pronunciation of water, which is a video installation, um, also a painting, I believe, right? It is also reproduced as a painting. Um, and then uh, another another piece that he made around the same time, um, the charm of, of bodybuilding, Uh so you read these together um, again, recuperating a sort of recycled, very simplistic meaning uh, that has been ascribed to his works as someone who is simply criticizing uh, the CCTV for being too um, for 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 bowing to to the government and um, allowing a sort of uh, standard interpretation of the events at Tiananmen to be. Uh, produced um, uh, televisually, um, and you say actually he's a very disillusioned artist, but not just politically. There is there is a lot more um, that he is uh, responding against, um, and his interested interest here is in the fixedness of symbols and definitions um, as much as it is in sort of political critique, if we would call it that. So, if you could tell us a little bit more about this duo of um, works.
2: Yeah, so John Paley is a really interesting figure. And I think he is a really interesting counterpoint, which is partly why I bring him in is because he has always, I think, or very much uh, resists uh labels are doesn't want to chase labels. He doesn't want to create something like contempt something that can be called contemporary Chinese artists, view himself as a contemporary Chinese artist. He's like, why, why are people so obsessed with this? I feel like it's all very limiting. Um, and that's part of his larger uh um kind of resistance to, as you said, like the fixedness of symbols. Um, and I view this as well in relation to, as you said, the, his choices of um, medium and what he's ultimately doing in video uh, in this famous work of his uh, called Water. I see the standard pronunciation from the Tsai Dictionary. Um, but uh, I bring him in his painting as well for a couple of reasons. One is that we have to understand that if we want to excavate ideas of how he was thinking about art, it makes sense, particularly when this work was being made. Let's think about what was coexisting with that video work at the time. And he was making paintings at this time. So can we track a similar sort of inquiry into art? The second point that this makes is that um, sometimes that bodybuilding series is like, he was just dealing with, he he was interested in pop and then he got that out of his system. And now he's moving on to video art, which he's the father of. And so there's a view, too, in which um, the ways in which medium is so important to expressing contemporaneity, that Saying well, um, video art is contemporary, whereas because it's new media, old media, like painting must not, you know, the people were discarding that so that they could move on to newer mediums that are more international. Um, and that's why in my book too, I have two painters, Wang Gongyi, Zhang Xiaogang, and also a sculptor, Sui Jianguo, because so often discussions of experimental art, contemporary art seem like they could, that can only happen in, Uh, installation, performance, and video, right? Because these are so-called newer art forms. Uh, But that's a kind of misunderstanding I think of medium because artists themselves were, and critics themselves were talking about uh, those sorts of distinctions. Like if we adopt this, does it necessarily mean it's necessarily more advanced than this other thing? So there was a lot of discussion going back and forth and debates around that. But it still seems like a very standard reading that video art must, it's just a sign of finally China is more content has like entered the contemporary era. Um, And now to fit into the exact work about water, um, the work itself is when you look at it, it is this uh, brief video less than 10 minutes where uh, you see a news broadcaster, very famous CCTV news broadcaster, Bing, who would have been recognizable to anybody from uh, his generation as being this figure from China central Television. So literally a mouthpiece for the, for the nation. And uh, she is, but when the audio begins, uh, she is reading uh, the dictionary definition for water right? So it's water, blah, 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 blah. And then like all the different um, phrases that starts with huh? like a water cart. Da, 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 da. And so the way that people have read it is this like complete subversion of her agency, right? You're, Really showing that she's evacuated any power, um, and it's really this like very strong political uh, statement of dissent and dissidence, right? Because he has subverted that, Uh, and so because he's shown that it doesn't, she doesn't care what she's saying. It doesn't really matter what she is saying. um, Ultimately, it's like showing that uh, it's meaningless, right? And that way in which the term meaningless gets bandied about so much in discussions of this work I think becomes highly problematic uh particularly when um we we pay attention to what she's not reading right she's not reading narrative right it's not a plot it's not a narrative story right she's not reading content that has to do with it seems on the surface like political in any way. And so it must just be meaningless. But as when you look at the image closely, right? When you look at the video, you realize she's reading off of a dictionary and it's also very much mentioned in the title of the work. It's the Cihai Dictionary, right? And the general uh, translation of the title of the work is the standard like definition or standard pronunciation. Um, But that standardness can also be applied to the standard Zaha Dictionary because the dictionary itself has been standardized and every 10 years it is re-standardized. So for him, I think anytime we see him thinking about meaning in this way, we have to pay very close attention, right? So it's not just that he's evacuated meaning. He's actually talked about meaning like ontologically because she is reading something where you are defining and saying that there's a definitive meaning to that. So I actually see it as an alignment of ways in which he's thinking about the authority of meaning and systems. Uh, and the very fact that that aspect of the work has gone unnoticed, I think speaks very much to the seductive ways in which we want to read resistance into the work and then we don't go deeper. Um, And so that I I quite like that as soon as you see that, you're like, oh, right, of course it is a dictionary. Oh, right, that is about meaning. That I think it's immediate way in which it can um, arrest people to say, the hopefully readers of the book to say, right, this is such a popular work. It is talked about so much in terms of the meaninglessness of things, but it's actually about profoundly about meaning. And then when we see it in conjunction with his paintings at the time, we realize, oh, he, there's also a shift in the bodybuilding series, right? Initially, it's these symbols, it's these um, juxtaposition of symbols and slogans. And then that it happens laterally across a canvas. So you can see each of the figures very carefully, like very clearly. Um, there's a bodybuilder <laughs> holding up a trophy, for example, the charm of bodybuilding. And then we have a slogan on the left about Fenshin, which is, um, we don't have to get too much into this, but it is a slogan that is popular um, about uh, from um about the uses of land uh, and revolutionary uses of that from the fifties. From but then there is another part of his bodybuilding series actually has to do with layering and obscuring of the images. So you might have a bodybuilder, but then it looks like she's been covered by a slogan, which in turn looks like it's been covered by another image, and covered and covered and covered and covered, and for him that's about I I read as the enunciation of different ways of trying to assert meaning, right? So ultimately he's interested in systems and meaning, the like why we fix those meanings, Yeah, ultimately I map that onto issues about why we assert meanings of an identity as well. So I see it as being really. Uh, like this deep-seated project that he has and that we can excavate and we can see this video as being really part of that, but we only can see that reading of it when we go deeper and realize, oh, what are the ways in which we've had blinders on? Why haven't we looked for this? Why hasn't that come out before in terms of an interpretation?
1: Uh, I can imagine an artwork in which a Western anchor was, for example, reading the Oxford English Dictionary definition of water um, would get profoundly more interpretation from Western critics. Um, so thank you for, for bringing that to our attention. It's a very good um, a chapter, I think, to assign even to undergraduate students. Um, I think it really gets at some of the you know, core issues really about representation that we see him theorizing here in his work. Um, we have two more case studies in your book that I don't think we will really have time to get into um, at, at, in, at any great length here, but I really encourage readers um, to to pick up your book and also look at these chapters about the sculptor, Sujian Guo, who is working through uh, stone and, and the meaning of stone. And especially you have um, a, a short history sort of his uh involvement in the creation of a very famous statue, the goddess of democracy on Tiananmen Square, um, a statue that is cast, of course, in the figure of the Statue of Liberty, but also produced by young sculptors who had been working in a socialist realist aesthetic of sculpture. Um, And then you go on to trace um, Sui's um, kind of recovery of his own disenchantment with these different modes through his practice with not just sculpting and plaster, but also stone. Um, And and, the, the very many layered connection that stone has in terms of Chinese media history is also brought up there. Um, and finally you finish with uh the book's only female artist who resents in fact being considered a female artist um Lin Tianmaiao whose whose work is uh involves uh fabric and weaving and and sort of these these arts that are deemed feminine um and it, quite kind of disparagingly so right so so for those of you who are interested these are also wonderful um chapters and wonderful additions to our understanding of contemporary chinese um, art history at this point, perhaps. Um, we've certainly moved uh, far along um, into the 2020s at this point. Um, so in thinking then about moving along and the future, I wonder what is your next project? What are you working on now? Um, you know, how perhaps how do you see it relating to this? Or perhaps you have really turned a corner and you're approaching a very different subject. So we'd love to hear about that. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much. I I do wanna make a point too, if we have
2: time, is that um, I'm glad that you noted that students um, can read these because the thing that informs my work now and that informed the writing of the work was very much having to teach, right? And then thinking, what do I put in my syllabus? And what do I wish that students had access to? And that's why each of the chapters is really a case study that models how to do close looking and how to question inherited categories and you know and how the importance of doing that and really the stakes of interpretation and misinterpretation in that sense. And so I did really want to think about, like, what would I say for my own students and undergraduates who... Um, I mean, I tried to make the book as really legible and accessible in that way as well, um, because I often think what what would most benefit this field of study as a scholarly study, thinking about how what we transmit to our own students, um, uh, and because I do see it as part of a larger issue where if we continue to only center Western interpretations of art history, for example, this does, you know, this encourages these biases and privileging of particular views of taste and value that in othering that continues and has real world consequences then. So those are always these big kind of commitments to the field that I always have and kind of uh, my my motivations behind that. So my next project, I'm really also continuing thinking about um these issues about how the limitations around how we think about global uh has always been kind of very east-west right and then a turning again to artists who themselves have grappled with this um I am very interested in making artists voices more apparent whether through their own voices right but also seeing that as their their work as enacting that as agency of showing their thought processes so um, artists who have worked on in recent years like more taking a planetary perspective for example thinking top terms of time that is much longer um t- thinking about space as being much wider right and how that implicates new ways of thinking about global, right? That pushes beyond just the same sort of problems that we feel like we are still in. And then applying that as well to exhibitions, when we only see global exhibitions as, for example, um, ones that bring artists from across the world together. Like that is seems to be the, our primary way of thinking about global exhibition. But what about exhibitions that are only about Chinese artists who are resisting or ways of being seen or uh, trying to make themselves visible in particular ways, uh, really themselves questioning the very you know, category of Chinese, that itself could be considered a global exhibition. And when we don't see it as part of that, what are we missing, right? So the similar sorts of, I think, motivations that brought me to my current book about what are popular interpretations, why do they exist, what frames of looking have gone unnoticed and what kind of analysis can we do to help to broaden the field, rectify some of these problems and still thinking about, you know, to hearken to the title of my book, The Future Histories, because it's about how those histories are written um, and what we're looking forward to.
1: Thank you so much for your time today on such a blistering day. And I hope you and our listeners who are in the Midwest or on the eastern seaboard stay safe this weekend as the snow pummels us. Um, And uh, I look forward to reading that work when it does uh, get published. Thank you so much. Thank you.